Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hi and welcome to this week's episode of Cross Section. Another week, another special podcast episode. This week, not only are Danny, Alicia and I together in person in the Evangelical Alliance offices in London, but we are are joined by another special guest, Jason Roach. Jason is Director of Ministries at Member Organisation of the EA London City Mission. He is Pastor of the Bridge Battersea Community Church. Jason, it's so nice to have you with us. It's great to be here. Tell us a little bit more about you and how you spend your time. Well, I'm married to Rachel. Uh, We have four children. They're sort of roughly start at uh, 14 and down to about eight. And what that means is I spend a significant portion of my time ferrying people around in, in cars uh, from one uh, football match or party uh, or school uh, concert to another. That's how I spend a lot of my time after hours. But we live on a council estate in Battersea uh, in central London. And we've been there for about 12 years. And we moved there in order to uh, start a new church, to try and live uh, in an area where we knew that often... The gospel got overlooked and people didn't have a chance to hear the good news about Jesus. And so we've moved there, lived there and tried to be Christian missionaries really there for, for the last 12 years. Well, it's it's so good to have you with us. And we're going to chat to Jason about lots of things today. We're going to be focusing particularly on racial justice and unity in churches. And we're going to look at his relatively new book that came out in the summer called Healing the Divides. But first, Jason, could you tell us what it means to be Director of Ministries at London City Mission? What, what does that mean? Yeah, a, a, an ex- a relatively common question. <laughs> exactly, what exactly does that mean? I guess London City Mission ordinarily has uh, about 100 missionaries who are based across London working in teams. And they are based in what we, according to some research we've done, are some of the most deprived areas of London. And the idea is that those teams work alongside local churches to help them to share the gospel with those communities that tend to be least likely to hear about Jesus. And they tend to be people who maybe live in council estates or people who are displaced from different parts of mm-hmm. uh, the world or the country, people who uh, are old or particularly young and so on. So a whole number of groups we try and work with. And my role in particular is to try and support and coach them, uh, lead the leaders uh, of those teams. And so I spend some time doing uh, some training, some time leading the whole organisation of London City Mission with with a group of other directors, and then some time on the ground, just trying to work alongside brothers and sisters doing evangelism across London. And one of the beauties of that is getting to see different ministries going on all all across the place because most of the time we're heavily invested in our own church so you don't Mm. get to see what god is doing by spirit across london that's a real that's a real privilege oh it's so great to hear about that thank you so on cross section we're all about understanding and speaking into culture with the good news of the gospel and as jason's already mentioned he's going to help us do that today but first danny our resident statistic expert, I want to ask you about the census. So we're we're recording this on Thursday, the 1st of December, 
And I was thinking, as I was thinking about today's episode, talking about a census does feel quite Christmassy. It featured in the Christmas story. (laughs) But so earlier in the year, there was a census across England and Wales, which in theory provides information that governments need to develop policies, plans, run public services and pick funding. But there's been lots of headlines this week about how the UK is losing its religion and for the first time ever we've had less than half the population identify as a Christian. Danny should we be freaking out about this? First of all I should caveat the fact that I'm not a statistician. The last time I did some stats when I did maths A level some time ago but I love stats and I am fascinated by it and I get geeky about spreadsheets and numbers. So the census which was conducted last year found that 46.2% of the population of England and Wales would describe themselves as a Christian when asked, what is your religion? That is significantly down, that's 13% down on the number in 2011, but it was also widely expected. Our own research that we had done, we did with other organisations and published this year in the Talking Jesus research, found that 48% identified as a Christian, so very much in the same ballpark. Uh, So we're not surprised by that. It's also notable that now 37% of people in those countries would say that they have no religion. And that is a significant increase. That's the second largest group. I'm not, to be honest, I'm not at all concerned about this. Mm. I think it's bringing some clarity to how we understand the religious makeup of, of our countries. I also still think it is representing a lot of people who will use a cultural label of being a Christian. Other research shows that 9 or 10% of people attend church at least once a month, which is the usual descriptor of someone who regularly attends church. If we add in reading the Bible and praying, that's about 6 or 7%. So we're looking at a much smaller number of people who would be considered as practicing Christians, uh, but there is still a, a large chunk of the country who would have some affinity with the Christian faith, even if it's not something they practice regularly. So I'm not concerned about it. But I do think it is good for us to consider and understand what's happening across the country and how people do think about their religion. Mm, that's Yeah, that's helpful. I, I always reminded the vicar in my last church, so it was a Church of England church, and Church of England churches, they have to do, uh, census isn't the right word, but they Electoral have to... Electoral role. Electoral role, that's it. They have to sort of measure who's there at each service. And he'd always say, the Church of England would say that if you attend one in four, that makes you a regular member, that is not my definition of being a regular <laughs> member. Anyway, so uh, I saw yesterday with what you're saying about kind of this nominal, maybe that means that less people who are cultural Christians are saying they're Christians. I saw yesterday a tweet from Nigel Farage with the caption, according to the ONS figures, London, Manchester and Birmingham are now all minority white cities. And to me, it definitely seemed like he was suggesting that he, he was conflating the issue of immigration with this statistic about the decline of Christianity. To me, that seems like nonsense and a, a dangerous stereotype that kind of Christian equals white British. Now, I think a lot of people would disagree with a lot of what Nigel Farage says. But Alicia, what have you made of some of the media coverage around the census? Uh, more noise than I anticipated. It's rare that um, media headlines would engage with kind of ONS data in this way. Uh, and I guess it's that old lesson from my university years doing statistics that the numbers say one thing, but what are the narratives that you want to create from this? Uh, and there's been a lot of news, left or right, 
talking about if this means that we are less of a Christian country, what does that therefore mean in terms of our constitution and the role of the Church of England? What does that mean in terms of, you know, should the way we do politics or the narratives and everything, because we're less Christian, we should reflect that in how we engage uh, in public life. So there's a lot of noise on social media uh, uh, and the headlines in that regard. Similar to Danny, I'm not too concerned by the statistics. I think 27 and a half million people that say they are Christians are still as significant and they are miles out ahead of others. But most importantly, Christianity and its influence in public life has a role to play, will continue to have a role to play in this current culture, society. The last year, the church has been active, engaged and just listening even to, to Jason or what's going on in London City Mission. There are Christians in different pockets of metropolitan cities and coastal and rural towns that are finding opportunities to engage, to disciple, to witness about Jesus. So in many ways, the headlines are noisy, but no doubt they'll move on to a new headline. And, and, and to be honest, Nigel Farage is just playing the role on one level. Like, so for London, to take London, for example, London is 53, 54% white. Uh, it is a minority who would describe himself as white British, but on one level, he's just he's wrong on that stat. Uh, but it is that conflation between immigration and... Because actually, both in terms of ethnic minority groups in the church, so we reckon roughly 25% of evangelical Christians come from an ethnic minority group. That's a disproportionate in terms of the population of the country. And many other ethnic minority groups will be more religious uh, from other minority religious groups. So to suggest that immigration is a cause of people rejecting religion is probably not, it's probably actually propping up the number of people who would mm. describe themselves mm. as belonging to one religious group or another. Mm. Jason, I mean, I'd, I'd go even further and just say theologically, Christianity has always been a religion that is mm. about people on the move. Mm. And so in one sense, seeing that there is a, an increased number of people on the move is an opportunity. Mm. Uh, so one way of phrasing it is, minority white and other ways of course saying uh, majority minority and historically that it has been the case that for christians for most of history in most of the world have been in a minority mm -hmm. and have been on the margins yeah yeah it, yes being shocked at that is is historically inaccurate jason in your book that you wrote with jessamine birdsall Healing the Divide, it's all about, well, it's not all about, but it promotes a multicultural, multi-ethnic church. And I just wondered, how would you define a multi-ethnic and or multicultural church? And, and why do you think it's so important that we have them? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's a particularly good question because uh, what people mean by that term varies so much. Mm. I think sociologically what we talk about is the majority of the church being made up of less than 80% of one particular cultural group, particularly the majority cultural group. And in some ways, that's a fairly, when you think about it, you can have many churches that would have less than 80% of one cultural group, but who didn't necessarily in the way that the, the church functioned and the culture within the church look particularly different from any other church. And so often when people use this term, uh, they're talking about something a bit deeper than merely statistics. Mm. They're talking about a type of 
church where the cultural influences that people bring to that community are somehow reflected in the life of that community. And that's why some people are moving towards using this term intercultural church, because it just helps to emphasise that we're talking about something more than just statistics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and unfortunately, there are many churches where uh, people would say that we're very multinational, we, many languages are spoken, but in terms of the culture and way that the church functions, you wouldn't necessarily know mm-hmm. anything about those other uh, cultures or nationalities. Mm-hmm. So that's a start of 10. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really helpful definition. And, and why is it important that, yeah, that the you. church... <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it's important simply because it seems to me it's important to God. Mm. The whole direction of human history is heading towards that wonderful vision that we see in Revelation 7 of uh, every tribe, tongue, nation and language worshipping the Lord Jesus Christ around uh, the throne. And if that is where we're going... Why would we not want to uh, have churches that in some way reflected uh, the direction of the whole of human history? What that doesn't mean, of course, is that if you find yourself in a part of the the country or world that is fairly mono-ethnic, and there are many places like that, that somehow you have to bus in people from different (laughs) parts of the world in order to artificially create something. No, no, no. But in the community that you're in... uh, it would be natural to want that to, to increasingly reflect the diversity that is on God's heart, that is people from every tribe and tongue and nation will worship in Jesus. And more than that, that diversity will actually be a blessing to the people in the church. You see, I think sometimes we can see it as a, a, as a okay, this is something I have to do, but, mm. but it's a struggle and it's going to have all kinds of difficulty and complexity. But actually, it seems to me that as we move and lean into this sort of vision of multicultural church, actually what we're leaning into is uh, one of the means that God gives us for growing ourselves, because so much in the Bible is about the one anothering sort of language mm. that we see. And actually, it's easy to one another your best mate who you've known for, you know, 10 years, much harder to one another people who are different from you. And that's where growth really happens at mm. those sort of touch points and moments. So it's an opportunity for us to grow. And that's mm. the exciting thing. Yeah, that's that's really exciting. And you kind of implied it there. It both shouldn't be seen as a checklist or this big struggle, but it also can't be left to just sort of happen without any thought at all. Yeah. But I will ask you more about that later. Um, So in your book, so I'm going to ask a cultural question, which I'm nervous about doing because really helpfully in Healing the Divide, you kind of unpick some of the problems with saying our culture or culture, because culture is made up of many different cultures. (laughs) But uh, in the open chapter, you sort of acknowledge that there's been a cultural shift since the death of George Floyd in 2020. And again, I recognise this is a bit of an impossible question, but where do you think the UK is at in terms of racial equality or lack thereof? Goodness me, that's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you could just sum up for us nicely, that would be, that'd be just great. I think one of the most encouraging things is that it does seem as if the death of George Floyd created a, a new kind of cultural moment where there was more receptivity to the fact that uh, racism is an issue. I mean, goodness, racism didn't start in 2020. Yeah, yeah. But, but it felt as if there was a cultural moment where 
I mean, forget the world, but the church in particular mm. was just more soft-hearted to, to thinking about this. And that gave an opportunity, I think, for lots of people who perhaps had experienced racism to speak up in ways that they hadn't had an opportunity to do before. And I think one of the, so that's the positive. I think one of the hard things is that the evangelical church often loves to see a cultural issue and have a kind of knee-jerk reaction to it. That is to say, here's the issue, right, what I need to do is, uh, we'll do a sermon next Sunday on this, and then we can tick that off, we've done it, and we can move on. And I think the challenge is, okay, what does this actually mean for the nature of our church long-term? And what ways will we disciple and institutionalise change that makes a difference in the way that our churches actually function day by day? And I think that's... That's yet to be seen. Mm. That's yet to be seen. And I think one of the things I noticed, and I think it was crystallised a couple of years ago around the death of George Floyd, was some churches and some Christians probably guilty of bandwagon jumping. So mm. it was like, here's a big issue, let's jump on board, let's yeah, say yeah. our piece. But then you would have other people that would react against that. Yeah. And then you'd have, oh, we can't have anything to do with that because that's all woke, we can't go there. And it's how do churches then find a way forward between those things? I think that's I think that's absolutely spot on. And that's one of the reasons I think Jasmine and I actually wrote the mm. book, because we were just aware that we'd seen that yo-yo effect in, uh, over the course of 2020, where some people were interested, there was a reaction against it. And how do we help people to do that? And, and to think theologically as opposed to just being influenced purely by the cultural um, things that can be like red flags mm. or red rags to a bull. If we hear this word, we dismiss it. If we hear this one, it's okay. Mm. And actually we need to think more deeply than mm. that. How, how can churches engage well with this in a way that does help people think more deeply and perhaps bypass some of the, it's not the whole bunch of issues, but some of the, yeah, how do we navigate it in a way that doesn't immediately get distracted into some of the wider cultural debates? Yeah, I mean, these are, these are massive questions. I like this podcast. <laughs> how do you solve this problem? Well, like, easy. I guess if it was easy, it would have been mm -hmm. done already. I mean, we all love Jesus. I mean, the churches of this land, you know, they want mm -hmm. to honour Jesus. And so if it was easy, it would have been done. But we are sinners saved by grace. And so... Uh, it's always a struggle. I think one of the things is is going deeper. And so I was really grateful. In fact, I, I was I was going to write this book two years ago and I remember speaking to a friend and said, look, I'm going to write this book and want to have it done in three months or something. And he said, I, my counsel to you is to take your time. And uh, take your time because what we need is something that goes deeper. And I think one of the things we can do as a constituency is just take time to go deeper and think more slowly about these issues. I think another thing that we can do <clears throat> is make sure that the right people are actually in the conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think so often, again, we try and address these issues without actually having the right kind of people in the conversation. And that often means we have to go slower as well. So those are two. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to say. Yeah, I'm so interested that you've said that because the kind of question at the front of my mind was when you have a book like this or even other issues like cultural issues that we've talked about like you know issues that have been in wider culture and then the church around power and abuse and the way women are treated and things like that 
when you have I will say, I think Healing the Divides really clearly and helpfully walks people through the problem and how we might make change. Is that, like I said, I've already sent the book cover to my to my leadership team at church because I want to be like, right, here's the solution. Let's just go and fix it. Let's and how how do you how do you be patient? Because it feels like you've you've obviously spent time thinking through what some of the solutions will be, but then you've just talked about how we need to take our time. For any activists that might be listening <laughs> yeah, to yeah, the podcast, yeah. How, how, yeah, how do we be patient and trust God with it? Yeah, that's a great question. And one of the things I say in the book is, is actually, I mean, it's a challenge, I'll say it, is to think about how we, how we approach the Sabbath. Mm. And I think that may sound like a, I don't want to distract people who think there is no Sabbath that we follow now because mm-hmm. of Hebrews uh, 10, even Hebrews 4. Four. Four. Thank you, Hebrews 4. Thank you, thank you. She's outed herself. <laughs> but anyway, we just need to recognize, one of the lovely things about the Sabbath is that it, it reminds us that we don't have to fix the world because God has it under control. And in fact, we can't fix the world, even if we wanted to. Uh, we need to wait on the Lord. And I think... I know for myself that in my life, as an activist by nature, my temptation is to want to fill every waking moment with things that I think I can do, and I need to leave space for God. So I think it's a pattern of life, rather than just an an issue by issue uh, question, that we need to get better at recognising that we cannot fix things. And that means, for example, that when we're trying to deal with big issues like this, we'll start with lament before we move towards trying to uh, get to solution. Mm. You know, how often do we actually have an evening of lament Mm. where we say, Lord, we do not know what to do. This is too big for us, but we're in your hands. But we're not going to do nothing because we believe you are big enough to make a difference Mm. here. So we're going to spend an evening on our knees praying. So, I don't know, so much to say. Oh, so challenging. I was really struck by a quote in the book which says, when a racist incident hits the headlines, is our first thought to phone a friend and see how they are or to change our status on social media, which, you know, is a great challenge. And I guess my question, anyone feel free to answer, any three of you, but how as Christians can we be distinctive in our pursuit of racial justice i know uh, you've you've already mentioned a few things but just in sort of the everyday conversation headlines news culture and faith if you like (laughs) from our podcast headlines as producer you're throwing out bombs with questions aren't you (laughs) i'm throwing them out do you know what since i think 2020 and not just george floyd but the pandemic in general Mm -hmm. the conversations around race if i'm being honest with myself and for audio listeners i'm a uh, a black Caribbean, uh, which you won't be able to see that, uh, and a Christian. I've been really tired by just the weight of the conversation and sense of so go slow. I appreciate that, and I totally, in a faith context, I'm like we need to go slow as a church to make sure that we're not doing the kind of virtual signalling and social media moment just to be on the hot topic. And I think that is incredibly important. And for every church, they need to 
are they still talking about the situation of 2020? Now, George Floyd happened in the US, but what's the UK context of racism, which I think the church is still on a learning curve with that. Uh, And I myself am just deeply frustrated by it. So news headlines this week, and not even this week, this year, I think every major institution, we've had child queue in education, Mm. we've had the police uh, report, we've had, you know, Charing Cross, all stories of misogyny and Mm. homophobia and racism. We've got the news this week in terms of Buckingham Palace and kind of Ngozi Fellaini's experience and encounter with kind of... uh, someone within the royal team uh, or kind of support her enduring and and listening to the where are you from, 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 from conversation Mm. over and over again. And it's just a tiring year to kind of endure that. And I think that challenge to, as church or as Christians, as brothers and sisters, to kind of be like, someone I know looks incredibly fatigued or tired by the conversation of racial justice. It doesn't mean that they're in vote commas racist or they don't care. Maybe they just need someone to come alongside to process, to be like, how is this affecting you personally and tiredness? So I think there's a need to be very pastoral in this moment. I think as the church, we need to be better at doing what we do well, which is the kind of pastoral, theological, and, and yes, the activism comes, but you need a kind of a well a well congregation that's emotionally you know connected spiritually mature and all of that to endure the fight because ending racism is a spiritual battle that's not it's a long haul that's you know persistence it's being willing to turn up to meetings that you're like we've had this conversation before and there's no action point so (laughs) so in many ways yeah growing in long-suffering patience endurance but just an appreciation that it's incredibly tiring and I guess the activists amongst Christians in the Christian community is like we're going too slow we're too slow we need to be going faster and further and outdoing what the culture is suggesting and I'm like maybe God is wanting to grab our attention in a different way so that's a fumbled answer Mm, but there's a lot Mm. I think there's just a lot. The, that last thing you said reminds me, I, there was a, a report that came out on uh, racism, so I can't remember now, some months ago, but David Lammy was on the radio and he, there's this quote that sort of went sort of viral where he, he just went through about 20 years worth of reports on racism and said, you know, implement the recommendations, mm. implement the recommendations, <laughs> implement, and just your thing about yeah, we had another meeting and there are no action points. So even when there are action points, what happens to those sort of thing? And I had a, I had a, I was asked to do a talk recently on racism by a group of churches that I'd written a paper for about five years ago. And I said, the first thing I said to them was, what, what happened to that paper that I wrote five years ago? <laughs> oh, sort of thing. You know, it's just like, this is now forgotten. And so we, we want to appear to be doing something but actually the steps that should have been taken before aren't always. Mm. Anyway, that, that really resonated with me at mm. that point. Mm. Well, I have been throwing out hard questions and they're not going to stop. So <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you all a breather <laughs> by doing our social media plug. You can follow what's going on with cross-section both on each episode and behind the scenes by following us on Twitter at EAUK News, Instagram Evangelical Alliance, 
and you can get in touch by email and email us cross.section at eauk.org. We read every single one of your emails and we're very, very grateful for them. Right, Jason, the book. I have a few questions I want to pick your brains about. I'm going to try and not give any spoilers. Can you give can you give spoilers on this? <laughs> you, you can be the judge of that. As I've said already, it's so practical and insightful and challenging. So you and Jasmine talk about the need to have a church that represents people across both ethnic and racial divides, but also class. And yeah, we touched on this right at the start of the podcast. I just wondered if you could give us a bit of an insight into how a church might go about doing that, how how it might cross those divides. Well, I mean, in one sense, it all depends on where they're starting from. <laughs> so how, how a particular church needs to act is a, a complex question. In one sense, there are some some big things that we can say. The shape of the leadership will always influence the, the, the shape and culture of the church and probably we need to work harder. I, I find myself as someone who comes from the Church of England, yeah, that's my sort of background, um, and there's a, a part of the church where we have to say we haven't done well at reflecting the culture and the leadership of the church, and the ethnicity of the people that we're trying to serve. So, so that's sort of big things. Uh, so, but it's easy to talk about these big things like the leadership and the the music of the church and the uh, the number of times you actually address topics that connect with people from different ethnicities and uh, all of that sort of stuff. But I wonder if before you get to any of that, really it's about the way that we see one another. And in fact, Jasmine and I are working on a part two to this book which is really trying to go a bit deeper in terms of the practicalities of what, what does it actually look like in community? And I, I think one of the things is just recognizing that we need to see people differently. And that is a massive challenge. That is a, I mean, it's easy, easy to just say that phrase. That is a massive challenge, but perhaps one little way in that, that the Bible gives us is, is that when we see people who we might think of as on the outside, Jesus calls us to see him in them. So I think of Matthew 25, you know, he's talking about that when you help the least of these, mm. uh, you're actually helping me. And I wonder, I wonder what difference it would make is if actually when we looked at people who we maybe naturally were tempted to look down on mm. or to look away from or to move back from, we looked at them and we saw Jesus. If you looked at someone and you saw in them something of Jesus, number one, you'd want to move towards them and not away from them. Uh, and your attitude to them would be completely different. Your question is, how do we do that? <laughs> I recognise that. But I think I want to push back a bit and say that because if that is the goal, then you begin to realise this is something far deeper than can be solved in a in a, in a 10 minute mm. podcast mm. or a or a program or but this is this is something that is going to take a revolution and a work of the holy spirit in all of us mm. and and i say in all of us because of course all of us have prejudice and bias mm. uh, it i mean i really hear what you're saying alicia that the truth is there is an unequal distribution of that in some ways i don't want to mm. pretend that that isn't the case mm. 
And yet at the same time, I want to come to this conversation recognising that I have all kinds of biases and prejudices that need, if that's even a word, that need um, working on. And so I want to work out with God or with my community, how do I see Jesus more clearly in people? I think it means being open to seeing the blessing that God wants to bring to me through those people. And at my church, that's that's just a sort of daily you know, reality, you know, I think of, you know, a guy who, um, well, I can't say too much actually, because this is going out, so I'm not going <laughs> to give identities away, but we have all kinds of different people in our church. And I, yeah, I confess to you that sometimes it is a struggle and we're never going to get on with everyone in quite the same way to quite the same depth. And yet the challenge to myself is, Lord, will you help me to see Jesus in everyone? So I'm sorry, I've sort of slightly ducked your question, like, but I think... I don't want to give you a superficial answer. Yeah. No, and I think there, I think there aren't superficial answers. I think that's exactly well. There, there are superficial answers, but they're not helpful. Yeah. Answers. One of the things that I reflect on is that church I'm part of in South yeah. London, it it is very multi-ethnic. Yeah. I it would be quite interesting to do a full audit, but yeah, yeah. Many different nationalities. Yeah. Probably minority white. Mm-hmm. Significant. Uh, Hong Kong, mm-hmm. significant uh, black and Asian groupings. But, and sometimes it pulls in different directions. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes the cultural differences aren't, well, here's the existing church and we need to change to be like that to accommodate more people. Actually, well, if you do this, it might help with one group, but it might not with another. And it is that ongoing conversation yeah. to work out how do we develop church community and develop a church life that works for everyone and isn't just reinforcing previous cultural assumptions but nor is it throwing all those out yeah and potentially pleasing one small group of people but they're not another and it's it's that so it's that long slow hard work yeah i think that's really helpful and i and i think one of the theological things that's important within that is is helping people to deal with loss Mm. i think as i've spoken to people about these sorts of issues one of the things that often comes up is a sense that of course i want to love everyone but i want things to basically stay the same as they are and i wonder if theologically we need to help people deal with loss uh, because that's where the rubber really hits the road if, as long as it doesn't particularly affect me, I'm happy. But if it's going to change things, and if I'm going to have to give up, whether that be a sort of cultural way of doing things yeah. or something more, that's that's where I'm going to struggle. Mm, that's a really interesting because I, I was going to ask about. So I grew up in Dubai, and my oh. church, <laughs> my church was really multicultural, and people from all over the world, and I loved that. But I think something that maybe happens, or my experience at that church, was you have all different sorts of expressions or cultural expressions when it comes to worship and listening to the word of God. And I think maybe what I saw happen over time is people kind of subdued to the lowest common denominator in in terms of expression. Maybe that was the, the majority culture, I don't know. But when people have very different ways of expressing themselves, whether that's in worship or otherwise, other people can find that distracting, yes. you know, yes. and on account of their own weakness or weakness in terms of attention span or whatever, 
in terms of saying but but how do you how how do we balance those two things of we don't we don't want people to be distracted and you know focusing on one person rather than the worship music or or the sermon but we don't want to squash people's you know cultural expression how how, i mean it's another it's another whopper (laughs) (laughs) How, how do we do that i think one of the things that makes it a real challenge is in london I can't speak for Dubai, but one of the things that makes it a challenge in London is there are so many churches. Mm. And in a culture of individualism, the reality is if I don't like how things are here, I, I can just literally walk, you know, 10 minutes down the road and find a flavour that's more suited yeah. to what I like. And of course, yeah, it, that, that wasn't the case in the mm. past where, frankly, you were all pushed together. You had to sort of learn to get on mm. with it. So one of the challenges is it's so easy for people to, to just move, to vote with their mm. feet. And, and because what we're talking about, we talked about, you know, seeing Jesus in people who are very different, we talked about dealing with loss, it requires a level of spiritual maturity that often we don't give each other as a community long enough to experience in order that we can flourish in that sort of mm. situation. I don't have an answer to that. That's a really, really hard sort of nut to crack. One thing that we can do, though, is in terms of the yo-yoing, is trying to think how can we institutionalize change i'm talking about not in a denomination i'm talking about in a local church Mm. you know how do we institutionalize things that both bring stability and celebration of different cultures and that doesn't have there's not one one size fits all for that but i think within your own local church it's working out what are the sort of non-negotiables that bring a sense of calm and rhythm and how can we build in across the course of you know a season or a year other ways of people enjoying that cultural expression? So for some it might be you have a service where once a month, you know, music is quite different, you know, as opposed to you know the the craziness in my church where you have every kind of flavor of music in one service. You know, that's not for everyone. That's fun. So so for some the way some it's you know different churches coming together a, a certain. Uh, every so often once a year or whatever and there you experience something of the difference in a way that you can't do in your local church you know there are different ways of uh, doing it in different models but it's the question is are we being intentional about thinking what are the ways that we're going to institutionally express our celebration of different Mm -hmm. cultures that's yeah brilliant this is so good i've got just a couple more questions for you before we wrap up I just wanted to ask about the RISE project that I know you spend a lot of your time on. Could you just tell us a bit about that? Yeah, RISE is a uh, an initiative we started at my local church, uh, which is really trying to get alongside and go on a journey with young people, particularly young men, because they are the ones at most risk of social exclusion on the estate where we live, between the ages of about 10 and 14, so particularly between primary and secondary school. Uh, to try and encourage them to uh, continue aiming high, really. And by aiming high, I don't merely mean doing well academically. I just mean uh, recognising that, you know, Jesus is the best leader that there ever was and we can learn from him about how to do life and to just go on a journey with them, uh, both in terms of, yeah, just socially, sports, in terms of their academics. And so it's, it, what does it involve? It involves three things. It involves a, a kind of after-school club that happens on certain days of the week where they can come and get some help and support with 
work, they can do some activities they wouldn't get to do elsewhere, and they get to hear about Jesus. It involves getting their parents together every so often so they can be a network of support for one another, and it involves some one-to-one mentoring. And I guess it's a way of saying, here are a group in our society which happens to be young black men in, a, in my particular area of London, and saying, how can we do something that tries to address an, a, an imbalance that has happened for mm. decades, which has meant that these young people are disadvantaged? What can we do? We can't do everything. And let's be honest, you know, this will make a difference to a few of the, even the young people that are in this group, but we can do something. And, and that's one thing that we've, we're trying to do as a church. And we found actually that in God's kindness, it's been a wonderful opportunity, not just to teach those young people, but for whole families to see this community, this church is really for our community. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's been a real blessing to be involved in. That's brilliant. We're, they, so this podcast comes from the advocacy team at the Evangelical Alliance and a lot of what we talk about is using our voices in public life. And I think that's such a brilliant example of what Christians can be doing mm. in, in the public life of their community. Last question. This is open to any of you. Once again, I'm going to ask a difficult question and then I'll answer it myself. I, I was just thinking, you know, we're coming towards uh, Christmas and in big cities like London. I know it's true of other places that means that we start to see maybe more homeless people, people on the streets around as we're walking to and from work, where we might be going. I just, I would love if any of you had any wisdom to share for how as Christians, oh, you get so many different pieces of advice, give money, don't give money, you know, do you engage, do you not engage? And I would just, I just think I would really appreciate, both selfishly for myself and for our listeners, some advice of how as Christians, again, we can be distinctive again, in this public life moment, coming towards Christmas, dealing with with people that are suffering on the streets around us. Yeah, I've been challenged about this recently, talking about it in my small group. And I think what God is challenging me to do is to give my time. So there's been times when I've seen someone and kind of walk past them on my route, or, you know, it's nine, 10 o'clock at night and they're at the station. And I just really felt the Lord prompt and say, I want you to go back and just chat. Mm. <laughs> so it's like, that is that solving their destitution? Is it solving their addiction? Is it solving, you know, the situation they find themselves in? No. But I think it's back to that point of he wants me to see them mm. and spend time um, um, amongst them. And not every time have I been, you know, responsive to that prompting and I've justified it. I'm like, yeah, I've missed it missed a chance it wasn't about whatever I could give it was a moment of and I think particularly in the capital time is something that we don't give to we're always busy we're we're en route to somewhere else we've got something to do or I've got to go to church and preach and then you bypassed several people you know a small group or something like that and I think I think that's something of helped me understand the crisis more generally like how has this individual got into the situation that then informs your prayer that continues to break your heart to then probably then engage in the longer term of kind of support either financially or serving in a ministry or your church setting up something as a response so I think that giving of time and being prompted of that and I already know that within the next 24 hours that's going to be challenged yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) yeah I think and this is probably something to, 
take a whole other podcast to talk about <laughs> is how do we navigate kind of strategic action with an outpouring of compassion and mercy and i think there is a place for thinking through both in the fact that actually there is a really important kind of almost immediate moment of compassion but there's also certainly when we're thinking on a church or an organizational level what are we doing that is effective and helping and how is what we're doing solving long-term problems and i know with homelessness that is one of the issues to grapple with and i think that's why i say it's task for another podcast episode to think about actually how do we how do churches and ministry organizations work in such a way that our action does both that it is an outpouring of our compassion and the mercy of god but also is done in a way that is strategic and helps people over the longer term yeah i think again so many things to say but try and be proactive rather than reactive so we know that we're going to face situations where you know either we react well or we don't the the passing someone by the street but what proactively can we do uh, can we give to a homeless charity or a homeless organization you know something like that at london city mission we have a, a homeless uh, center called weber street and one of the things that some churches have been doing recently is getting a group together who've been coming in and doing a supper evening so a group of them come every say tuesday night and they offer supper to a group of guests who come along. And that's been a way of them getting to know a group of people and doing something in a sustainable way that makes a difference mm. to people, sort of touching on what you're yeah. sort of saying. And it's been great because they take that back to their own churches and, again, maybe begin to see people who are walking through the doors of their own churches differently. I try and, and this is a, I, I throw this out as an accountability because I said this once and I, I don't always do it, but the idea was that I'd take some money out of the bank at the beginning of the month as cash, because I don't carry cash anymore. Mm. So it's a real challenge when you walk past people in the streets. So try and take out some money that is for those encounters. And so when I, I, when I pass them, I can offer to buy them some food or whatever else it might be. So again, it's proactive rather than reactive. And I think, just forget, you can cut it out if it's too long, <laughs> yeah. but I, I, some years ago, I was called to church because the, I was told there was a guy who turned up who was asking for money. And uh, this happens quite frequently in church life. And this guy had come and uh, uh, he said that he had come over from another country and found himself uh, mugged and didn't have his wallet, couldn't pay for his hotel for the night. And I, I had this thing where normally I would deal with this by saying, look, I'll come to your hotel and pay the bill, uh, but I won't give you cash right now. And the thing about that is 90% of the time they say, oh, no, 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 it's fine, because they were sort of scamming. Sort mm-hmm. of thing. But this guy didn't say that. He said, no, that's fine, come to my hotel then, which was an hour away. And so the rest of my day was now spent travelling with this guy on the bus yeah. to his hotel. I'm on the bus sort of thinking, oh, goodness, like, I've got so many other things that I could be doing. I'm sure I was trying to prepare a sermon. There I was. <laughs> And this guy was just there trying to chat to me and make conversation. I was just grumbling. Anyway, we get to his hotel. So is this guy staying here? Yes, I pay the bill. He says, will you come up to my room? And I go up to his room. And uh, I should have said that he can't see. He's virtually blind. Mm -hmm. And he fumbles around and he picks up a Bible from his bag from the shelf. And he pulls it down, he opens it up at Matthew 25. Oh, wow. And he says, <laughs> and, he, and 
you, you, you know you know the passage you know when you do this to the least of these you do it to me and he said can I pray for you and I I realized at that moment you see I'd approached this whole situation thinking uh, woe is me all that I have to do for you and all the while God was trying to meet trying to teach me that this was all about him doing something for me mm. he taught me something about the nature of humanity and uh, yeah I'm very grateful for that moment and I guess that's all about how do we see people how do we see people wow that's brilliant I'm gonna end the episode before I end up in a pool of tears Jason thank you so much for being with us today it's been such a joy to chat to you thank you for sharing your thoughts and, and wisdom with us as always, I must say thank you to Chris Ringland, who does all our post-production. And we will be back next week with a Christmas special. Don't know what that means yet, but that's what it will be. See you then. Cross-section. Conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hello, I'm Chris Ringland and I work as part of the Scotland team. Yes, I'm the same Chris that gets mentioned at the end of our episodes for putting the podcast together. Thanks for listening to Cross Section. We hope you really enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform, share the episode on social media and tell your friends and family so that they can enjoy it too. Thanks for listening and have a great week.